many of you disagree with it strongly? Uh, Stacy. Stacy. Stacy, the only one. And Abai. Abai. So Stacy and Abai are the only two that are strongly disagreeing. Can you give me your reason for disagreeing? Basically, like everything that attracts these basic guys. So it is the asking one, not one of the attracts. Okay. Now you've heard a different twist on what Faraz just said. How many of you agree with Stacy? You guys just agree with Faraz. <laughs> Make up your mind. Faraz, do you agree with Stacy or yeah, I agree. do you, do you, I, are you I, I, in your your logic now. I agree with her. You agree with her, so okay. Uh, so Stacy is right. I'm sorry, I have no candy to give out. But uh, yeah. So the point is, when when you say something is basophilic, we're talking about attraction to that kind of dye, the philia for the basic dye, not that the protein itself is basic, right? So. In a normal, regular H&E section, when I say something is basophilic, that's the second question, what would that color appear as? Okay, there's two options. Have shades of pink, shades of uh, blue, there's no gray. Uh, how many of you think when I say basophilic it means pink, it'll appear pink? And how many, of, how many of you think it's going to appear as pink when I say basophilic? Christelle and Joshua. And did you just raise your hand? Think over, we have only two hours. <laughs> when I say something is basophilic, how many of you think it's going to show up as pink? That's two hands up there. How many of you? are confident that it's going to show up as blue. Oh, okay. I like it. Okay. Yes, it's going to show up as blue. <coughs> on a normal H&E stain, it's going to stain with hematoxylin, which is a basic dye. And hematoxylin shows up as blue. Okay? Actually, I told you guys there's a typo there. On the second part, it's the, the protein with a net negative charge. So you might want to go ahead and change that in your PowerPoint. I hope you don't want to make do that right now. But it's still not going to show up on course sites. So where does the acidic part come from? Because you're trying to stain these crazy bacteria. 
look at crazy bacteria, and they have a whole different uh, structure compared to human cells, or compared to mammalian cells. All right. So if you think the terms hematoxylin and eosin are going to confuse you for the rest of the semester, when you get to the third semester, you're going to have to know safranin. You're going to have to know. methylene blue, you're going to have to know all, it's, it's going to be a lot more complicated, okay? And which brings us back to what I was telling you yesterday, if you are eager to learn, you will learn. But if you are complacent and you're sitting here saying, well, I joined medical school, so I have to go to class, then you are going to be that way through this semester, through the next semester, and so on. Right? If you're, if you don't feel like something, you have, you don't feel like after class you acquire something that has, you know, opened up some brain cells over there or made some connections over there. If you don't feel that every two hours or every day, then you gotta revisit why you are here. Okay. Yes, Um, I'm still not clear on this. So, basophilic, right? It attracts the basic dye. So, so the, the tissue itself is acidic? Exactly, because opposites attract. Okay. So, remember if... Okay. You get that? So, if it is attracting something that's basic, that means it, that itself is acidic. Yes, what? I just want to say, so I'll do that. Um, so, we're saying the philia is about the dye, not about the protein. No, philia is about the affinity of the protein to the yes. But I'm saying like the name of the philia, like basophilic, is for the dye. Correct. So philia for the dye, basophilic. Correct. And so the protein. So is it the dye that is basophilic, or is it the protein that is basophilic? Protein is basophilic. Protein is basophilic. Exactly. Exactly. The protein is basophilic. All right. Uh, and if you have to describe the protein in another word, so if it is basophilic, the protein is acidic. acidic. Okay, net, net charge acidic. Now that does not mean that there are no basic amino acids within that protein. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll explain that when we start off with cell biology. Uh, any other questions that you guys have? Like microscopy, electron microscopy. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is a little less relevant uh, for electron micrography. I told you you have to have a much thinner section. And I told you what that it's not so much about the diffraction of light rays, but it is diffraction of. So pretty much, you know, when you use a light microscope, you turn on the lamp at the bottom of the microscope or the light source, right? In an, and you can see the entire beam of light. When you do electron micrography, it has to be inside a contained environment. And even if it is glass that you can see through it, you turn on and there's a beam of electrons hitting the tissue, you're not going to see anything. It's like nothing changed, right? That's because it's electron and you don't see electrons. Okay, that's, it's that simple. 
However, the tissue has to be much thinner, and the electrons are, and everything is computerized, so you basically acquire an image on your computer screen, right? Uh, so that's, this, these kinds of fixation methods and all that are slightly different, of course, it's not going to be the same. And you have to have a much thinner section, so usually your, the, the microtome for electron micrography uses the diamond knife. Okay. Uh, that being aside, now there is another method for electron micrography. All right. But before we go in, I told you the electrons have to travel through the tissue section, right? So it has to, that's, that's called transmission electron micrography. Now, the other method is called prefracting. You can just pass it forward. They have to pass it forward and tell them, set it up in front. You don't have to get up all the way and come up here. Um, so the other option is something called freeze fracture. But I'll tell you why that is important. Freeze fracture, does that make sense? Those two terms, if you have to put. Yeah, you freeze it and basically fracture it. If you have to freeze something and fracture it, what are the options? How would you do that? You just throw it on the floor and it'll break up. Like, have you seen Terminator where that tank of nitrogen explodes on the freeway. Okay, we have a generation gap here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know the stem that they use in surgery? That's the stem that they use. Oh, that's cryostat. That's a cryostat. This is, now cryostat I told you is for, it will still be light microscopy. Okay, you're cutting sections, but Instead of fixing and embedding, you're freezing and sectioning, right? Okay, so freeze fracture means you're basically fracturing something. Obviously, you're not taking sections of it. And what is the point of that? Look, this is freeze fracture uh, methodology. You take your tissue that is processed with glutaral, fixed with glutaraldehyde or something else, doesn't matter. Put it on a little uh, mesh, a mesh or whatever platform it is, and freeze it. Then you take a little chisel-like knife and you fracture it. Make a little fracture on it. Now, the plane of the fracture cannot be determined by you. It's a random fracture. So you, okay? And then what they do is they coat it with some sort of a metal any metallic ions, they will coat it, the surface, and then look at that. You will have this, which appears as the surface of that uh, specimen. And then what you do is the same thing. Now this is what you do after that. You see this is the source of the electrons, this is the specimen there. And the electrons go over that like a little beam of light, and bounces off in different directions. But the image that it creates is almost like a 3D image directly. A 3D image, and something like this shows up. Now this is an electron micrograph of a cell. And you can see there's so many bumps that you can see. It's like, you know, obviously not a smooth surface. You can see it's, it's got little projections, it's got little depressions. 
this is the nucleus of the cell, this is the Golgi apparatus, these are little vesicles. Now this is a vesicle that looks like a bubble that has stayed intact. This is a vesicle that is actually still a bubble, but it was fractured in the process. So it looks like a little depression, right? So this is the kind of image that you get, and this process is called scanning electron micrography as opposed to transmission electron micrography. So you have to understand, you will see a lot of abbreviation in your textbook saying SEM or TEM. Now SEM stands for scanning electron micrography and TEM stands for transmission electron micrography. Okay? And you have, well, you're not going to be questioned about, you know, is this like microscopy, is this scanning electron micrography. I'm just setting it up so that you're not confused in the future. Okay, you look at an image and you know, oh, this is a scanning electron micrograph. It looks like 3D, it looks uh, real, you know. Okay, are we good? The other option, and this is atomic force microscopy, you can, if you want, you can uh, listen to what I'm saying. You take the sample, and here you actually have a little tip with a, I believe it's a diamond, uh, but this is sort of spring-loaded, that's why it's called cantilever. And they fix the specimen like so, over here. This is a cell in culture. How many of you have worked with cell cultures? Cell cultures? Okay, so when you put a cell on a petri plate, usually, depending on the cell type, and depending on whether there is some medium to get it attached to the, to the bottom of the petri dish, they will spread out, right? And when they spread out, all their organelles will sort of appear as little bumps. Now what this is doing is once this is fixed that way, this specimen will move, but the lever will sort of move along, and anytime there's a little bump on the surface, it'll move up. And that is sort of recognized by a laser, by a detector. So there's a laser light that's incident on the lever, and then there's a detector. And using all your uh, Using a very sophisticated computer, you develop an image like that. All right. So that's atomic force microscopy. Not to worry too much about it. This is showing you uh, magnification that can be acquired by different types of microscopy. Obviously, light microscopy is going to be the. It's basically just lenses. You use lenses to correct your vision. You use magnifying glasses to magnify certain objects, and that's macro, right? That's big time. You put a couple of lenses together, and you can look even more. You can, you can magnify things even much more than that. That's what happens with light microscopy, okay? As you go this, as, as you go further down, look at this. This is the range of light microscopy. So with light microscopy, you can go up to this. Electron microscopy, you can get down even further. Now, what is shown over here, look, this is just human skin. You see the creases on your skin, the fingerprints that you see. You can see them with your eyes. You can see them with a light microscope. You can see the cells. Uh, I'm not so sure. You have to have really sharp eyes to be able to see these kind of cells in your skin. Uh, but light microscopy, you will be able to see these cells. So you can see a whole bunch of cells stacked up as part of your skin. And then you go in, you can see individual cells and their contents. And then individual organelles. This is a mitochondrion. 
This is a ribosome inside the cytosol. This is one single ribosome that has been magnified. So now you have stopped with light microscopy and you basically depend on electron microscopy in order to elucidate that structure. And what is shown over here, how many of you are familiar with this structure? Do you know what this is? So this is usually a depiction of protein structure, amino acids, and each of those colored balls represents either a carbon or an oxygen or a hydrogen uh, atom, okay, all together. Look at this, that's the same thing. Sorry. We'll talk a little bit more about that a slightly later. Now, this is how a transmission electron micrograph looks. Not 3D at all, or it looks like a two-dimensional image, but you can see a lot of things pretty clearly. Um, you may not be able to get everything right now, but as we go on with cell biology, you should be able to look at a cell and identify certain specific organelles, okay? Um, and hopefully by the end of the first three weeks, you should be able to do that. This is a scanning electron micrograph, okay. Showing you um, a hair cell. We won't talk about hair cells till Friday, and then only in week 13, we'll talk about hair cells. Yes? For the scanning electron micrograph, is the image is it the is it metal that you provide that you check for the image, not the cell itself? Not the cell itself because you don't get coated with the metal. Remember pre-structure. But now there are more sophisticated. Uh, I'm sure right now they have more sophisticated uh, uh, methods to look at images by electron microscopy. But we'll just leave that for that and say that basically they coat it with the metal and they look at. The surface, the contours of the metal. Alright? Okay, structure function relationship, and yeah, that's for you to read on your own. Okay. Now, this is the difference between direct and indirect methods. Now, in the direct methods, which we've covered so far, both light microscopy and electron microscopy, why do you think I call it direct? Visualization methods or techniques. I think you're putting them under the microscope and actually looking at them. Exactly. You're putting them under the microscope and you are actually looking at the specimen or how it looks like through lenses, right? Now, indirect visualization techniques use something. How many of you have worked with antibodies in a research lab? If you use cell culture, more likely than not, you would have used antibodies, okay? So indirect visualization methods use, they don't directly look at cells under a microscope. What they look at is something that you treat the cells with, and then, boom, it shows up. And I'll explain here the first technique, immunochemistry. When I say the word immuno, what comes to mind? You know, immune system antibodies. Okay. If you go uh, to that syllabus that I gave you on the first page, the course, course title, did you guys read the course title? Did you guys read those papers? Yes. 
what does the course title say? Exactly. Then introduction to physiology, immunology, and pathology. So when we do the lymphoid system, we're going to be talking about antibodies. We're going to be talking about molecular aspects of immunology, just to set you up so that when you go to microbiology, which includes immunology as a part of it, you will understand the structure of antibodies. You will understand uh, how an antibody that is generated in our bodies by the lymphoid system. What does an antibody usually do? What's Recognize. its job? Recognizes pathogens. Recognizes an antigen. Antigens. An antigen. Yeah, pathogen. Pathogen is a generic term, but something that causes an immune response. Antigen. Okay. So an antibody is a protein complex that will go and specifically and preferentially bind to just one protein type. So. People knew about antibodies a long time ago, but then these biochemists and these uh, cell biologists took advantage of that information. What did they do? They took antibodies that were specifically generated. Now you can purify an antibody. They took that and then they chemically uh, connected it, bonded it to a, a small chemical uh, molecule which fluoresces under ultraviolet light. Okay? And what do you when I say fluoresces under ultraviolet light, under normal light, it's not gonna look like anything. So if you turn this light off and you just put ultraviolet light, which you won't be able to see yourself, that little antibody, that fluorophore which is attached to the antibody, is gonna glow. Okay? And Imagine the antibody being such a microscopic structure and the fluorophore being smaller. Imagine how pinpointed you can actually look at a protein. So you take a cell, you take a protein on a petri plate on a slide, you treat it with antibodies, which has this little fluorophore, and then you wash away the excess, which means Everything else is gone, all the excess antibody is gone, but if the antibody has a specific protein that it is generated against, it will bind to it and it will stay bound to it. Then you take that little slide, throw it under a microscope, put on the UV lamp. And when you put on the UV lamp, when you look at the image, it will just be that part which will fluoresce. So within a huge cell, you have an antibody to, say, actin filaments the actin protein. Only the actin proteins in the entire cell are going to light up. The rest of the cell will have some background light, but it'll pretty much be dark. Okay? And that's what's shown over here. Now, this is indirect immunohistochemistry. Um, this is more like a direct histochemistry, also known as immunofluorescence. So let me look at this Let's look at this image first. You see these proteins on the cell or on the tissue, and you have an antibody that has that is got this fluorophore, or the fluorescent tag. You treat that, it binds to just one type of protein. So anytime you see purple proteins like this, this antibody will more likely bind to those. That's why it's not binding to the green ones. Because it has been generated specifically for the pink ones or the purple ones. 
And then excess ones washed out, and then you look at it, you turn the ultraviolet light on, you'll see within the cell, you'll only see where these purple proteins are. That's direct because the antibody is directly labeled. A more sophisticated technique would be indirect, where you would have a primary antibody which binds to the, the protein of interest, and then you will have a secondary antibody which binds to the primary antibody. You don't have to understand. It's, it's not too complicated, but you don't need to worry about it. Essentially, the secondary antibody is labeled, and you can see it. Okay. So when I throw up slides showing you immunofluorescence, the moment I say immuno, in your mind, what has to come, what has to come to your mind is antibody, fluorescent tag antibody. Okay. When I say immuno, are we clear? Yes. Monoclonal. Which okay? Which case you will use monoclonal versus polyclonal? Um, I'm just debating whether I should, we should discuss this over here because if you introduced a term, you're just going to throw off the rest of your class. <laughs> monoclonal? No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm glad you're curious, but um, that's like what we do in labs, but. Monoclonal antibodies, monoclonals are more specific, that's all. Monoclonals are more specific. Uh, they are usually generated in very small animals. Uh, how do you generate these antibodies? And what are these, what are these antibodies? You can buy antibodies from a lot of biotech companies. Sigma? I said a lot of biotech companies. You name one. Uh, yeah, you can get it from Sigma. Okay. You, you get it from Sigma. I'll get it from somewhere else. Um, and what they do is, so if you're looking at human cells in culture, we know the structure of all of the genes in human beings, right? A lot of organisms, we know all of them, the entire genome. You take part of the gene, the genetic code, you translate it, you get the protein code, the amino acid sequence. Take the amino acid sequence and there are computer algorithms that's going to uh, tell you how a protein, an amino acid chain, will fold to give you the protein. Now, if an amino acid chain folds to give you a protein, like a glob, right? We talked about that yesterday. Which amino acids are going to be more likely to attract the antibody? Or which amino acids will the antibody more likely to attach to? Are they the ones on the outside or perhaps the ones on the inside? Outside. Obviously on the outside. The ones on the outside. So you can't, you need to know which amino acids are on the outside, which amino acids are on the inside, and then you take that sequence and what they do is they inject it into a small animal like a guinea pig or a mouse or a rat, and then that animal preferentially, their lymphoid system, their immune system generates antibodies that are specific for that protein, and then you can extract that antibody, purify it, that would be a monoclonal antibody, okay? And then you take, if you need to generate the polyclonal, usually the secondary antibody is a polyclonal, okay? But we'll just leave it at that, and if you want any further uh, clarification on that, come see me in my office. Any other questions? So, immunofluorescence, immunohistochemistry. Look at the images down at the bottom of the slide. 
these are obviously really bright colored images, right? They almost look like you're at a rave party or something. No? Okay, that wasn't... <laughs> um, but look at this, you can now use two different antibodies targeting two different proteins of the same cell. Right? If you're using indirect, you can use two different primary antibodies. Or if you're using direct, what are you going to use differently? If you're looking at two proteins. Yes, well, but what is going to be different about the antibody when you have to look at it? It's going to be the, the tag. You need one thing to appear under the same light wavelength, you need it to appear blue, you need something else to appear green. That way you see blue and you see green and you know that, oh, the blue is the nucleus, the green is the actin filament because we know that antibody for actin has got the green tag. That's there. All right, same thing over here. So we'll worry about that later, but you can see kind of how proteins are tagged and recognized and visualized. Obviously, this is an indirect visualization technique. You're not looking directly at the cell. You're tagging it and then letting it fluoresce. That's an indirect visualization. All right? Okay. Hybridization of nucleic acids. This is going to come in handy much uh, toward the end of the first three weeks where we're going to look at uh, the nucleus and chromatin. Okay? Components of... Uh, uh, the nucleus, which includes the DNA. Now, in the DNA, using these techniques, you know DNA has two complementary strands always. And when I say complementary strands, there's base pairing, all this you've known from high school, right? Please say yes. Yes. Well, okay. All right. Makes my job a little easier. So, when you have base pairing, there's extreme specificity. There's no random base pairing. You know that. So, in order to visualize DNA or a string of DNA, a stretch of DNA, uh, a DNA molecule, you can generate. You know, you can generate DNA in a lab, right? Okay. So you know the DNA sequence. You can generate a little string of DNA that is complementary to that string. Then what do you do? That same fluorescent tag, you attach it to that little complementary string. Now that's called a probe. Okay? A little stretch of DNA with a fluorescent tag, which is complementary to a piece of DNA that you're looking for. You take a cell, you heat it up. What happens when you heat the DNA up? What is denaturing? Proteins and Unfolding of the proteins, but we're talking DNA here, we're not talking protein. What happens Amino to acids. DNA? Yeah. Nucleic acid. Well, the, 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 the base denaturing of the proteins, that's histone. But we're talk, I'm talking about the strands of DNA. Chromatin? They unwind, they open up, they open up. So the bonds that are there between the bases, they break and two strands open up. That's what happens when you heat DNA. Okay? To above 94 degrees Celsius. So, 
Now you have DNA that has opened up. You throw your probe in there. What's going to happen? Base pairing. That probe, if you have excess amount of probe, chances are that probe will go and bind to that part of the DNA which it is specifically complementary to, right? And then what's going to happen, it's going to stay there because you drop the temperature. So it's not going to unwind or not going to separate. It's going to stay attached to that. That complementary strand might form a little loop, but that doesn't matter because we're looking for that particular sequence of DNA. And then it stays there. Fluorescent tag, attached to it. Bring down the temperature, it stays attached. Look at it under the microscope, under ultraviolet light. You see a little fluorescent dot on the chromosome. Okay? That is what is called hybridization because you're hybridizing, you're bringing two nucleic acids together. One is a probe and the other is the inherent DNA. That's hybridization techniques. Okay? We use this technique mostly in genetic studies. You need to know if there is a mutation or not. We use something called FISH, which is fluorescent in situ hybridization. Fluorescent in situ hybridization. And we will apply this technique to some genetic disorders that we will again study in week three. All right? And this is an investigation. A little like the if you, if you have a patient, why are you studying this? If a patient comes to you and you know with your knowledge, right, this patient is exhibiting signs of a certain disorder. You ask for a family history and you figure out, oh, this patient has definitely got uh, thalassemia or uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. Pardon the use of the big word, but get used to it pretty quick. Okay? And then, you know it's a genetic disorder. How do you confirm the genetic disorder? You take this, and you see, all right. Uh, now, those disorders that I mentioned may not necessarily be, but sometimes you have something called translocations, which means randomly one piece of chromosome one goes and attaches itself to chromosome 12. That happens when cell division occurs, right? Problems with... Uh, movement among chromosomes, that's not good. A lot of them we don't identify. Why? We never see those. Why? Because more often than not, they are incompatible with life. So, the child is not born. Or, you know, the, it's, it's uh, embryonically lethal. So, but then, some mutations are not that crucial, but they escape, and they escape that lethality thing, and the kid is born with a genetic mutation, but then that genetic mutation can be pretty serious in terms of quality of life at a later point in time, even during childhood or adulthood. So you take a probe, since we know the sequence of all normal genes now, you take a normal gene probe, and then you look at it, and you expect this particular sequence to be on chromosome one. But when when you do a fish, when you do a fish investigation, you see that it is attached to chromosome 12. What does that tell you? Your 
your diagnosis was right, you have confirmed that the child has, or the patient has, uh, an inherited disorder. And in this case, it has normally what's supposed to be on chromosome 1 is seen on chromosome 12. That means there's a translocation. That's how you diagnose a translocation. You don't use fish only for translocation, you use fish for a lot of different things, and we'll talk about that later. Right? Any questions? Good thing I'm not going to ask you guys to draw. So, like I announced yesterday, those of you who wanted to do that little workshop, uh, not workshop, microscope thing, that's not going to be acceptable. Okay, I think we are on schedule, so after a break, we're going to kick off the unstoppable cell biology and histology course. Smile, come on, you guys don't smile. Did you guys watch that TED talk?